We're going to talk about a really, really important uh, personality uh, in the uh, history and development of uh, jazz, popular music, uh, music education, a whole lot of things. He's also a controversial feature, uh, a controversial figure. So I'm going to take my time with this one. It will be a part one and a part two. I want to do this justice and I want this to be also be fair uh, to Mr. Kenton. Um, maybe I should start out by presenting what we will develop as the quote problem here. Um, I grew up down here in Florida, played in band uh, from Sarasota, not far from here. Uh, played in high school jazz band, played all the charts, college, the whole shot. I never really heard of Stan Kenton until I moved to Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, while I was down here, it was all Basie and Ellington and Basie and Ellington and Basie and Ellington, and mostly Basie. And uh, a few others, you know. Um, Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, that kind of thing. Um, Quincy Jones, you know. Um, Jay McShann. But I moved to Erie, Pennsylvania, took a job teaching at a music store, uh, teaching private trombone. And the proprietor there had this after-school big band uh, that he ran as a volunteer, pretty much. All the private teachers would uh, suggest, um, you know, four or five of their best students to be in this select big band. And they rehearsed one a week, and I got involved with that. And this guy loved Stan Kenton. That was my first experience with Stan Kenton. Um, so immediately, there is this racial divide that is going to be an issue going forward. Uh, I'm going to treat it as fairly and gently as I possibly can. Now, born in 1911, Stanley Newcomb Kenton was raised poor, didn't have a lot of money. Family had moved to Wichita, Kansas from Colorado, and that's where young Stan was born, Wichita, Kansas. They moved for a short while back to Colorado, that didn't work very well. So then they moved to California, Southern California, in a suburban area called Bell, California. From there, we know that uh, there was some music in the family and uh, young Stanley started playing the piano and uh, he was actually pretty good at it. Uh, he was listening to uh, recordings and all the local uh, musicians he could hear and pretty soon in order to earn a little money because there was not that much money in the family, he was playing little solo piano gigs around Southern California. Um, you know, and sometimes it's far away at Vegas, playing some of these smaller clubs, playing solo piano. And uh, this was working out pretty well for him. Um, after a few years, 
he started playing uh, with this group and that group, and he got involved uh, with uh, some of the larger bands and orchestras as uh, an arranger uh, and assistant conductor, sometimes piano player. And uh, he's starting to build his career and expand his, uh, his uh, palette, so to speak. The things he enjoyed and things he was actually pretty good at doing. Arranging, composing, um, uh, being a pianist, uh, and he had aspirations of being a band leader. Um, he was not immediately very good at that. Um, uh, when he tried to step out and do it uh, on his own, did not work out so well, so he regrouped. And he met this guy named Vito Musso, tennis sax player, uh, played with a lot of bands all over the country. And um, they had a band together. Uh, it was not very successful. They ended up breaking up, but a lot of the guys in that band in the late 30s, you see, ended up uh, being a part of uh, Kenton's later uh, first big band, his first big band. Um, he put together this big band and uh, was feeling pretty good about it. Uh, he landed a job on the Bob Hope Show. He had a way of getting himself into the door. Um, but uh, Bob Hope fired him. That crushed him. And Bob Hope brought in Les Brown and his band Renown. It's another band I did not hear about until I moved to Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, Les Brown ended up doing the uh, Bob Hope show for 50 years. So, and that, you know, Stan couldn't go back to that. So he had to regroup. And uh, he played in some territory bands and whatnot for a while. And when that stopped working for him, he decided maybe he needed a little more education. So he went to study piano and composition, taking lessons. He wants to become a better pianist, better arranger, better composer, uh, etc. And um, uh, he needed to figure out a business model, as we say today, a business model. Because the whole typical big band jazz thing wasn't working for him so well. He needed some more attractors, so to speak. So he came up with this blend of playing jazz with a kind of a classical, more refined tinge, not the rough, jamming, bassy type, Jay McShann type, but jazz for more of a concert audience, and Papa songs with very, very beautiful young ladies singing the lyrics. Oh yeah, sounds like we got a winner. Mm -hmm. Some of the singers that uh, fronted the Kenton Band uh, in these days were been Anita O'Day and uh, Julie Christie good-looking women who can sing. So with this combination of some jazz and some pop, 
he was able to move things around and he always made sure that he had dance music, that, they, that, 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 that his book had dance music, not just concert music, but stuff that people could dance to. Now, his first big break after that failure with Devolve Hope and all that stuff was he got a gig at the Roseanne Ballroom in New York City. And not only did he get the gig, but somehow he was able to influence one of the most popular dancers in the world to endorse his performance. And that is the great Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire put his name in the marquee. I support the Stan Kitten Orchestra coming, dance your blues away, whatever that was, it worked. He had big, big crowds, man, there. It was a big, big success. The dance music, the beautiful girls out front singing, you know, playing a little jazz for the people who need to have a little bit more heat once they had a little bit more to drink. And the Roseland being a huge venue, thousands of people can fit in there, and it's all about dancing. Stan Kenton and his orchestra are now a big hit big hit, and he used that to build his career. That was his business model. Some jazz, some dance, some pop, some just that, 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 that was a venue, and it worked. His band was actually the first band to play an outdoor arena, and not just any outdoor arena, Hollywood Bowl. That's right, Stan Kenton Orchestra. They packed between 15 and 20,000 people in there for one night only. And the profits for the band for that one day was over $13,000. And back there in the 40s and 50s, that's a lot of money. We're talking success. We're talking major success. So now, by the time we get to the 40s, Stan has figured out something else. When he was with the Bob Hope Show, he had just regular musicians from the area playing in his band. By the time he met Vito Musso, and Vito introduced him to some more really, truly bad cats that could play, the band that played Hollywood Bowl was like a band of superstars. Every cat on the stage had a big name. So he went from just having sidemen to having a band of superstars. So people were coming not just to see the pretty girls out front singing, but also to hear some of their favorite artists stand up and play solos inside the Stan Kenton Orchestra. It's a winning formula. He could work with publicists. He could work with promoters. He could work with concert promoters. He could work with record companies. He could work with, he was one of the first guys to get signed by Capitol because he had this thing of creating hit popper songs. Eager Beaver was one of the first. I think that may have been Anita O'Day. This man was starting to build what today we will call a jazz empire. 
in the 40s, starting like at 45, 46, in the downbeat readers poll, which I used to read all the time, because every year I would read it to make sure that J.J. Johnson was still rated the top jazz trombone player in the world. <laughs> that was me. But in the 40s, the top jazz musicians in the world on every instrument were almost all members of the Stan Kenton Orchestra. That is how dominating they were in a public sphere. Now understand, this is the same period that you got Monk and Diz and Miles <laughs> creating bebop. Charlie Christian, and this is really where the music is going. Their, their music moving forward. That's not what Stan Kenton is doing. Really, he's out there making some money, getting some publicity, and the world is recognizing his guys, not their guys. And near the end of the 40s, when Dizzy and those guys are starting to get uh, some popularity, uh, a jazz writer wrote an article about how amazing it was that in a year in which Dizzy Gillespie is recognized as the undisputed king of the new thing, Stan Kenton made a million dollars and Dizzy made peanuts. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. <laughs> it wasn't right. And this became the first time someone said out loud there is a problem. And unfortunately, it would have been okay if in 1956, which was the first year that the downbeat and metronome pose did not have the Stan Kenton Orchestra and his boys as the winners of the poll, when they were replaced by all black musicians like Cannonball Adderley and Miles Davis and Dizzy and Sonny Rollins, Stan Kenton could not keep his mouth closed. He made some statement that seems to me that the most endangered species are white jazz musicians. Well, maybe some sour grapes, my friend, but you know, at that, at, uh, it's about the same time Emmett Till had gotten uh, killed and, and in Mississippi. This, this is not a good time to be making comments like that. And he was taking the task for it. And he kept being taken to task for it for at least another 20 years. I found an article written in 1968, which a um, PhD from University of, uh, of Michigan State uh, took him to task for that comment. Um, so Stan Kenton had issues uh, with race, um, or at least it would appear in that in the span of his career, he had over 600 musicians come and go through his organizations and less than 2% of them uh, were non-white. So that is one of the things that we will be exploring uh, later down the road.
1956 was the year that uh, the Kenton Band and its members were unseated in the downbeat and Metson Long Poles and uh, Stan had some unfortunate uh, sour grapes. But three years later, he did something that is groundbreaking. He created the first major jazz camp. I think it was called a National Stage Band Jazz Camp and soon to be called a Stan Kenton Jazz Camp. And it started at Indiana University. It's a great idea. You bring high school kids in, you put them with great professional jazz musicians who tutor and teach them for a week. You give them rehearsals and clinics and whatever, and they go back better musicians. And Stan believed, Stan Kenton believed, that this was the only way to perpetuate this jazz music. He did not believe in the old way of doing this, which is still being done, by the way, where older jazz musicians tutor young jazz musicians in jam sessions and impromptu gatherings. That still goes on. But you still have a lot of jazz institutions based on the Stan Kenton model. One of, uh, and that's, that's very important to understand that, he made a great contribution to jazz education with the creation of those Stan Kenton jazz camps. First at Indiana University and then later he moved his library and everything else to University of North Texas and he continued to do uh, those jazz camps. Um, and even in the uh, history of that uh, research of the jazz camps, um, I find uh, that when they list their outstanding uh, alumni, uh, the only uh, African-American I see is Keith Jarrett. And when they list their outstanding uh, clinicians, uh, teachers, uh, the only African-American I see is uh, Ray Brown. So this is the controversy involving Stan Kitten. I most certainly am not making any accusations right here. I'm just presenting some things that probably need further analysis and uh, things that are at least at the surface a little troubling. Let's not forget that he was the first to do an outdoors festival and he packed Hollywood Bowl. Let's not forget that he packed the Roseland. Let's not forget that after losing the gig on the Bob Hope Show, he regrouped and came back even stronger. Let's not forget that he created a business model for his organization that was successful for him for over four decades. Let's not forget that he was the genesis for the organized sort of jazz education experiences we have today, including Clearwater Jazz Holiday's own Young Lions program. Because I would be a liar if I did not say that the program is based on what is probably the Stan Kenton model, originally the Stan Kenton model. And that model is now prevalent all over this country and perhaps all over the world. 
So Stan Kenton made some very, 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 very profound contribution to jazz education and to jazz and popular music in general. We will dig more into the literature in a later um, presentation. I do want to talk about um, adventures, uh, series he did. I want to talk about the Afro-Cuban influence that he added to his arrangements when he added the arranger, Mr. Rugolo. I want to add, talk about him bringing Machito into the uh, organization uh, to make sure that what he did with Afro-Cuban sounds was legitimate and was credible. I want to make sure that we understand that he did have respect for the music and the integrity of the music. I do want to make sure that there are probably more high school kids that have played the music of Stan Kenton than have played the music of Count Basie. Now, there are people who are throwing things at me. Just listen to me. Stan Kenton's music, especially the Afro-Cuban stuff, pieces like Malaguena, Malaga, uh, the Sueto Salatantas, all of those songs are standard fare for marching bands and drum corps and have been for 30, 40 years. So you literally have tens of thousands of kids who played those tunes outside on the marching band field and you literally have millions of people who have heard those tunes played over and over and over by their favorite little high school or college bands or drum corps. So Stan Kenton has made a major influence. Let's not forget that. We'll be back with part two soon. Thank you very much.